Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 138 of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Lind. And I am Kayla Moria. That was beautiful. Thank you. Uh, We are a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. Kayla, how is it going? It's going great. Good. Um... Just had Oktoberfest this last yeah. weekend. That was a ton of freaking fun. All the freaking fun? All the freaking fun. Uh, we played Friday and Saturday night. Had excellent crowds both nights. And honestly, I, I don't know that it could have gone better. That like, is amazing. It was remarkably stress-free considering how I normally handle Oktoberfest. <laughs> it was not as stress-free for my mother. Oh. Dropped her phone in a porta potty. <gasps> no. She did the smart thing. She did not fish it out. Good. <laughs> good. But it was just so sad. We were having such a good, it was a great Saturday. We had started the day by hanging out and they went and got lunch and I hung out with my sister and then we went and sat in the hot tub at Pier B and then we had like enough time to go casually get ready and get dressed and then that happened. But she went back to her hotel room. Used uh, my sister's phone to call it in, and so she could get a new phone sent to her, and then just we carried on with the weekend. But it was early in the day. It's not like, oh, somebody's drunk and they dropped their... It was just a really unfortunate incident. Dude, I was just thinking yesterday, why is it that in... I, this Not saying that this is what happened to your mom, but why is it that when there are toilet paper holders, that they always have slanty tops? Yes. Because women, one, we don't even get good pockets to begin with. <laughs> so we put our phones in our back pockets. And then we go into a, a public restroom yep. and you just need to take your phone out of your back pocket and set it somewhere and it slides off the top of everything. Uh, yes, yes. So that was the one unfortunate incident of this weekend. That is very unfortunate. I'm really sorry, Kayla's mom. But the rest of the weekend was great. Uh, spent the Sunday hanging out and then watched a movie with Sean that I specifically remember needed to remember to mention to you to tell you to never watch it. Oh. So it's okay. Books it's called Books of Blood, I believe. All right. It's based on a Clive Barker like series of short stories. Okay. Really good stories. But the first like little story in the movie was about a woman with misophonia. And so, so much of the movie just like randomly focuses on mouth noises. Oh my people God. People eating, people like yawning, people Why? chewing. Like, no. And so, I don't have misophonia. misophonia in the way that like I'm not bothered by mouth noises. But what did get to me was. They did it in the, you know, super anxiety-inducing way that, like, people. I get overloaded with sounds really badly. Yeah. There's too much going on at once. I can't handle it. Yep. So they combined it by doing mouth noises, but then it was just an overwhelming amount of mouth noises. It wasn't just one person's mouth. Oh, it was... I watched it. The that. the clip was real. <laughs> it was a really good story. <laughs> if you are not bugged by mouth noises, you should totally watch this movie, but the whole time I was sitting there, I was like, oh, Brittany would absolutely hate this. For some reason, <laughs> and I don't know why, like, there are a, two ASMR people on TikTok that I enjoy. 
Oh, I hate ASMR. I'm very specific about it because, again, mouth noises and just certain sounds bug me. So I'm very specific about it. Mm. But TikTok has decided, hi, we're going to give you all of these ASMR lives. And then who like are chewing and I'm like, why are you doing this to me? I keep saying, I'm not interested in this creator. I'm not interested in any lives. Please stop sending me lives. And every other thing is a freaking live of someone doing gross sounds. I am not on ASMR <laughs> TikTok. I still, everybody gets those. There, oh. There's no controlling it. And I really can't stand it because there, there are people that I'm going to do this. You just skip over this when you edit. They literally, they just, they talk like this. Yes. Then, but then they're, it's like their mouth is full of spit while they're I talking. know. And I'm like, Ugh. See, that is what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I cannot, I can not with it. I'm like, And it's TikTok. while they're like clicking spoons on the microphone. Yeah, it's not even, it's not. It's too loud. Yeah. You need to calm down. You're being too loud. <laughs> nice, nice. Nah, thanks. How are you doing? <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm doing all right. Are you I... sore after your golf outing? <laughs> no, I am still really tired, though. <laughs> uh, I went to the Zeitgeist um, Spirit of the Times on Friday. It was lovely. Got to hang out with a lot of really cool people. And then, yeah, yesterday, <laughs> yesterday, I did the fourth annual September Slam golf event, which... I don't know. It's the fourth one I've organized and put together, <laughs> but I know nothing about golf. Paige from Luce was talking about a birdie. She's like, I think we're going to get a birdie on this one. And I went, is that good? <laughs> and then Rye and, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of the other guy who was there. Bartender, we all know and love. Mida, Hugo. Uh, no. Cover. And uh, they're like, it means good. It means good things. And I was like, yeah, you get that birdie. And Paige is like, and an eagle is even better. And then I learned what those were. And I was telling Bill, who has been at every single one of them. He's on our board. And uh, I told him, I'm like, I know that a birdie is this. And he goes, oh, look at you. <laughs> I'm just so proud. I'm so proud. I'm like, that after four years, I understand Something about basic golf. I know. I am proud too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, golf apparently is a great sport to get into because as you age, it's still easy to do, but active enough that it's good for you. I do not understand. I've been, I watched a lot of people hit the ball a lot yesterday and I don't, I lose it in the air. Like I can see it for a little bit and then I always seem to lose it. So I would never know where my ball landed. I'd have to have someone there like scouting for me. So if you existed in the Harry Potter universe, you would absolutely not be a seeker. No. In Quidditch. You no, would, no, no, no. But I'm like really good at Where's Waldo. <laughs> so it's like, it's the different kinds of things and crossword puzzles. Fantastic. No, uh, word search. Yes. Thingies. Yes. Yes. Fantastic at those. I'm glad you, I was like, cross, what does crossword have to oh, do with it? Crossword? <laughs> you already told us you're not good at trivia. <laughs> I think crossword puzzles are not your thing. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. So you, we, bo we both had great weekends filled with fun stuff. 
Yeah. Love it. And I am so excited for your story because I looked on the list when I went to write down mine and I saw what yours is and I'm excited because again, as we recently covered, I wanted to cover this (laughs) and apparently it's been on your list for a really long time. So I'm excited. Let's do it. So this week I'm going to cover the case you mentioned during your coverage of the San Pedro haunting. If you've not listened to the last two episodes, go back and listen to them because Brittany's got a part one and a part two mm-hmm. that is also great and similar to this. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about the Doris Bither case, also known as the Entity Haunting. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. A uh, little bit of a content warning. There are mentions of spectral rape and substance abuse in this story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No graphic details or gory descriptions, but I just wanted to give you all a heads up. Mm-hmm. As always, if you're not comfortable with even the mention of that stuff, then we will put in our description where Brittany's story starts. Yeah. So that way you can just skip ahead. So I tried my best to find the most credible sources for this information, right? Like I always do. Though it should be noted that there have been quite a few investigators, apparently, that have claimed to be a part of this investigation. <gasps> And our good sir, Barry Taff, is quick to point out that they weren't. Oh, my gosh. Is it the Warrens? The Warrens are one of them. Yep. Yep. So I did not include anything that involved them. Because you're like, you weren't even there. She doesn't even go here. (laughs) Uh, A quote from Barry Taff. There have also been many people who have claimed that they were a part of this lab and that they were also a part of our investigation on this case. There were only three names formally associated with this case, one being Carrie Gaynor, my associate at the time, and Dr. Thelma Moss, the head of our former UCLA parapsychology lab, who only visited the site on one occasion, and yours truly. During the last three decades, I can think of at least 10 different people who've claimed to have worked with us on this case. Some of them I've never even met and wouldn't know if they were standing next to me in a room. Over those many years, people in other states have even claimed that the entity case occurred in their own backyard, not here in a suburb of Los Angeles. Put simply, they're all either lying or emotionally disturbed. (laughs) So Barry Taff is like, no. I like how it gives him a little leeway. I mean, they're lying. Or emotionally disturbed. So Barry, we got you. I, I specifically tried to find stuff that didn't have anybody else claiming to be a part of it. So everything I found included only those three people and their investigation team. Also, I'd like to make a side note. There were two berries that were associated with my last two weeks of stories. I don't know if I think that Jackie had some sort of romantic thing mm-hmm. with Barry Taft or if it was Barry the cameraman. Okay, so it just, could have been one Just or to the let other. you know, if you're, if you're picturing Jackie... With this berry, I don't know if that's if that's the right one. All right. The bulk of my information came from Barry Taft's articles and interviews with Javier Ortega, who has interviewed Barry Taft along with Bither's family members for a book he's been writing. So, on to the story. Doris Bither moved to California with her family when she was around 10 years old. So one area where this super like differs from their San Pedro haunting is the cooperativeness of the haunted family. 
Okay. While Jackie worked pretty closely with the berries and Jeff. The berries. <laughs> and from the sounds of it, she kind of had an open book approach. Very like, this is my life. Yep. Please help me get this figured out. Yeah, one of the berries was just camping out at her house for a couple of nights. Yep. Dor- wow. Doris Bithers seemed reluctant to reveal details about herself to the investigators of the case. So very little is known about her life prior to the haunting other than... She moved to California when she was 10. <laughs> That's it? Yeah. Okay. Um, through later interviews with Doris's sons after her passing, it was revealed that she had been ostracized by her family during her teenage years due to her rebellious and wild behavior. According to one son, she began experimenting with Ouija boards and holding seances at a young age, eventually turning to drugs and alcohol to cope with her troubled psyche. At first, with these interviews conducted by Javier Ortega from GhostTheory.com, her middle son Brian's interviews were questionable because he continually contradicted himself. Ugh, Brian. In terms of his responses to the questions asked of him. When Javier interviewed Doris's other two sons, he learned that Brian also had problems with drinking and drug abuse. Mm. So some of his statements, though, were supported and corroborated by his brothers. So he's not all... They think he's just confused about some of the details because he was also the middle son. So at the time of this, and we'll get to that, but he was, I think he was like 13. Ugh, and I know what it's like to be the middle child. Y'all, you're neglected. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was like, no, what? we're not. I am also a middle child. <laughs> it's fun to joke about, but really we're not. Well, some of us are. Eh, well. That's a whole other episode. Anyway. <laughs> That's some sort of a psychology episode. <laughs> not a paranormal one. Um, so according to Doris's other sons, there were subtle amounts of paranormal phenomena present long before they moved into the entity home in Culver City. They spoke of some psychokinetic events and even the occasional apparition, but nothing earth shattering until 1974. And that's when they moved into Into this new house? Yep. Okay. In a 2011 article written by Barry Taffy said... Doris was very evasive and somewhat cryptid regarding her background, so much so that she refused to even tell us her age, which we knew was older than ours, but not by how many years. Had we pushed Doris hard to reveal more about her hellish past, such efforts on our part might have pushed us right off this case. Had we even attempted to secure the type of background information we usually collect, such as medical, psychological, family psychodynamics, Prescribed medications with names of meds, dosage, and duration, as well as recreational drugs and alcohol usage, Doris surely would have shown us the door on the outset. So they went in with very limited and little information, just the basics of what Doris would give them. A Mm -hmm. lot of this information I have now is only because of these later interviews with her sons. Okay. By 1974, Doris was a single mother in her 30s. She had four children. One six years old, uh, that was a girl, and then three sons, ages 10, 13, and 16. From everything I can tell, the fathers were not in the picture. Um, Every child had a different father. Mm. She was living in a small home in Culver City, California, and just trying her best to get by. Not long after Doris moved to Culver City from Santa Monica, a mysterious lady showed up at her door and told her that her house was an evil place. The sons corroborated this. That is always something you want to hear from a new neighbor. 
According to journals kept by Javier, the woman told Doris, you need to get out. I used to live here in this old house back when it was just a farm and I was a little girl. There's something very evil here. This place is haunted and you need to get out. Unquote. When Doris asked the woman what she meant or tried to get further information from her, the woman dipped. Like, she she, she gave her warning and she was away because she obviously didn't want to stick around there. Okay, that's not very helpful, though. But Doris was not in a place where she could just up and move her and her four kids. Mm-hmm. It wasn't long after that that the paranormal activity began to materialize at this house. Doris and her family began to see semi-transparent apparitions that appeared to be human in shape and size. Taff said... Was there a connection in that unknown lady knew something ugly about that particular ramshackle tinderbox Doris now lived in? Or was this just a coincidence? We'll never really know unless we find that woman some 37 years later. Unquote. So I'm guessing that's never going to happen because that was a 2011 article. We still haven't heard from this lady. I don't think we're getting an answer. They called her house a ranch. Ramshackle. Tinderbox. Ramshackle. Well, I mean, I'll get to it, but it's it. It was condemned. It, oh, she okay. was living in a in a really bad house. Okay. As one could imagine, the family was too scared to contact the police about these experiences. So yeah. instead, Doris had confided in a female friend about the events happening at the home. Bither's friend had been, you know, hanging out and overheard a conversation at a bookstore between two parapsychologists, Barry Taff and Carrie Gaynor. At the time, they worked at the University of California in Los Angeles. And they were discussing, you know, their work as parapsychologists in this bookshop. So she overheard it and she was like, my girlfriend, she's having these problems and asked if they could help the troubled woman. Um, And these young scholars, intrigued by the possibility of getting to investigate a haunting, agreed to interview Bither on the urging of her friend. Yeah. And Taff shares this story in his 2014 book. And a 2017 DVD interview. So that that story of how they got connected with Doris is from Taff himself. Okay. In their first conversations, Bither claimed that for years she had been attacked, bitten, beaten, and sexually assaulted by malevolent spirits. Dr. Taff and his associates had serious reservations about her claims. Mm-hmm. In his initial discussions with Doris, Dr. Taff reported that she was the victim of an abusive childhood and was demonstrating symptoms of deep psychological trauma, as well as in adulthood, she had experienced a string of abusive romantic relationships. Doris. And several sources said she had problems with abusing alcohol, while others just said substance abuse. So there was questions on, was it just alcohol or drugs and alcohol? Yeah. Although Taft didn't immediately dismiss the case, these discussions added to his skepticism. After considering all the factors, Dr. Taff was like, you know what? We're going to visit the home and we'll see what's what. Yeah. On August 22nd, 1974, Dr. Taff and Gaynor arrived at 11547 Braddock Drive, Culver City. From the outside, the small house appeared normal. Mm-hmm. little run down, but normal. But the inside of the home was... Uh, they were greeted by the smell of rotten garbage... They saw dirty dishes piled high in the sink. There was garbage. Every the, the place was very dirty and not taken care of. Okay. These poor living conditions and a tumultuous relationship between the mother and the male children is what the investigative team noted upon their first visit. 
The investigators reported a feeling of overpressure in their ears while being inside the home that first time. Okay. And according to Taft, the house was twice condemned by the city at this point. The children first told Dr. Taft about the entity they called Mr. Who's It. All four children had seen Mr. Who's It on multiple occasions. He noted that their depictions were remarkably accurate, even though he had interviewed them separately. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just matching each other's, but also in details commonly attributed to entities from his other cases. Oh. We don't get a lot about Mr. Who's It, but this is what I found interesting connected to the San Pedro hunting. Okay. The family believed that Mr. Who's It was the spirit of the children's recently deceased grandfather. He appeared as an old man and seems to have been harmless. He just was a apparition that they would see of an old man that would just, like, chill out and hang. Had all the apparitions in the Bither home been so friendly and easygoing, they probably would have never, they would have been like, oh, okay, well, Grandpa's here and just moved on with their life like so many people who are haunted do. Right, right. I can live with this. But they were not. (laughs) You're trying to take my thing. (laughs) Doris also went on to say that in addition to Harmless Mr. Who's It. There were three malevolent entities in the home that were aggressive towards all of the family members. Doris, however, was the one who seemed to be the target of the most violent attacks. While the children were pushed on occasion, and sometimes even would be described as thrown, it was Doris that claimed that one of the entities, the largest one, was sexually assaulting her as the other two held her down. Oh my god. As if this woman hasn't gone through enough in her life. Yep. Some skeptics may have written that these claims were attention-seeking or possibly a symptom of delusion that can be brought on by substance abuse, but there were witnesses to the attacks, including her children. While no one saw the actual entity, witnesses did see Doris attacked by invisible force that punched and slapped her, threw her against a wall as if phantom hands were grabbing her. Doris also displayed injuries common to rape victims, including bruises on her inner thighs and throat. Oh, my God. During one of these assaults, her eldest child had witnessed it happening, and he tried to get his mother free. Right. And he was thrown across the room and broke his arm. Right. I, I mean, what are what can you even do to help? Doris's neighbors also testified to seeing apparitions moving around the house. The skepticism remained in these initial interviews. I mean, there were the bruises, but that could have been, you know, somebody hiding something in a personal life. There were the children's injuries, again, could have been people hiding stuff in a personal life. Right. Was she really haunted or was she making stuff up? Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're trying to examine all angles. That is, until both Taff and Gaynor observed a metal skillet leap out of the lower cupboard in her kitchen, flying across the room several feet. So they were like, oh, well, never mind. I guess it's real. (laughs) We just thought that maybe she should be on medication. They investigated her home several times over an 11-week period, attempting to document the claims of Doris and her family. They captured strange arcs of lights and photographs, and Barry and Carrie also experienced balls of light flying past them and felt unexplained temperature drops. Okay, classic, classic. While the phenomena observed in the home included many instances of the type of activity commonly reported in haunting cases, the Bither home seemed to have reached a state of infestation as the activity was nearly unrelenting. 
There were levitating pots and pans, strange sounds and smells, and objects thrown about by unseen forces. This was happening daily. The most disturbing aspect was not the usual poltergeist-type activity, as it seemed to be clear to everyone that there was something truly evil in the house when it came down to the physically attacking of the family. Yeah, yeah. Any any entity that's going to sexually assault someone is truly evil. As the investigation continued, Dr. Taff organized a group of paranormal investigators as well as professional photographers and camera operators to go into the Bither home and attempt to document the case. The group assembled in Doris Bither's bedroom one night to try to record the assault. After a period of time had passed and nothing was happening, Dr. Taff uh, suggested that Doris yell at the unseen entities to try to provoke them, which was a very Bagginsy move on his part. Yeah, also, like, apparently you can't do anything to stop it once it happens. You're yes, just that's, throwing her under the bus. That's, You're that just was using my her as thought. bait. I was like, that's sketch city. Ugh. But it worked because as all looked on, a green mist began to form in the room, and before long, a figure could be seen in the mist, becoming more dense as time passed. As Barry would later describe it, suddenly the lights coalesced in the corner. We could see from the waist up a large apparition of a man. It was described as being a large human torso, very muscular, though there were not any other features such as arms or legs, so they could just see the torso. Ew. On another visit, a group of investigators gathered in the bedroom in an attempt to contact and communicate with the spirit, and Carrie recalled hearing a whispering voice repeating, Kiss me, kill me, just before a heavy flower pot, which had been sitting across the room, crashed into the center of the group, narrowly missing the heads of the assembled. Interviewing the whole family, Dr. Taff also reported that the eldest son would go on to say that the activities intensified whenever he played certain music. Black Sabbath and Uriah Heep were the albums played. The songs mentioned or were about devil worshiping, and that seemed to be what upset the poltergeists. Asking the boy to play the songs in question, Dr. Taft did observe that the lights in the orbs did increase. So, okay. okay. So songs about devil worshiping made it mad. And that's the theory. That's the one thing that they mentioned about the music. It doesn't keep coming back. Uh-huh. But I don't know that, like, do we know for sure that it was because it was about devil worship or was it because maybe the poltergeist isn't a fan of Black Sabbath? That, so that's what I was thinking is my head didn't immediately go like, oh, it riled them up because they love the devil. It was. But that's just, I'm just going off of okay. what Taft's notes were. Okay. And if you mean mid 70s. I know. Well, I, know. my thought was like, maybe they just didn't like it or they're like, this is insulting. This isn't even accurate. <laughs> According to a couple of different sources, the paranormal activities were extremely powerful when Doris was present in the home. Doris was almost always in a drunken stupor, and that seemed to be when things were really active. While intoxicated, Doris would attract the phenomenon almost on cue. There were times when she was present with a team and was not under the influence of alcohol that the poltergeist did not manifest itself. So... They concluded that when Doris's mind was clouded or her inhibitions minimized, her psychokinetic energy took over. That's, yeah, that's, I mean, I wouldn't have used such fancy words. I would have said, I don't know, man, she's putting out some vibes. <laughs> putting out vibes, 
psychokinetic energy, same thing. It's the same thing, guys. When the film from numerous cameras was examined, there was little to see, as is often the case when you're investigating a haunting. They experienced much more in person. Mm-hmm. But the main photograph of interest is one of Doris sitting on her bed during the attempt to bring on the spirits. In the image, she can be seen with a strange arc of light showing over her head. The investigators point out that the light could not have been created by the lighting in the room because it is actually above Doris, not on the wall, and it does not bend with the corners of the room. Oh, okay. I'm excited to see this. So this is the photograph that is supposedly bringing that on. Well, that's weird. Right? You're right. It doesn't it doesn't bend with the corners of the room. It seems to be freestanding over her. But it also doesn't give me glare. No. Because it's, it's not a perfect circle. It's not a perfect circle and it's not it doesn't have enough of a trail. It's too solid. To be like something moving in front of the camera. In in my opinion, from what I've seen, now granted. No, because this I'm one I would say is glare. Yep. And that looks nothing like glare because it's not even. And that's why I wanted your opinion because you are a photographer and I am not. <laughs> no, that's that's weird. Right? I will put this on the social meds. Doris Bither eventually disappeared with her family. Mm-hmm. Uh, shying away from the limelight gained by the release of a book and a film written about her experiences. Yeah. It was said that she moved to another part of California, then Texas, then back to California again. In more recent times, some of the children have confirmed everything that happened in the house in Culver City Mm -hmm. and even added an unexpected twist to the story. The spectral sexual assault of Doris Bither continued wherever she went after No. At one point, Doris claimed that she had been impregnated by the entity. That turned out to not be true. She was not pregnant. But the assaults did continue after they moved out of the entity home. After Bither left her Culver City home, the phenomenon ceased to exist at the house. So it was just where she was. It was just where she was. Future residents of the home have not reported anything out of the ordinary. The house remains standing to this day, at least as of the 2014 article I read. But I thought it was like multiple time condemned by the but 70s. It can be redone. I guess as long as it's got good bones. Exactly. So just because it was condemned at the time, somebody probably bought it, fixed it up, and then put it out as rentals because that's what people do. Mm. Here's a haunted house for you to live in yeah. temporarily. So, and I'll but, take all your money. But here's the day. the thing. The house remains to this day as of at least that article ghost free and is in good condition now. Okay. You can still visit it. Now, you can't, like, tour it from what I see, but people have posted the address online, which makes me wonder who would want to live there because you're just going to be dealing with attention whores all the time. But, you know, whatever. To each their own. Barry and Carrie's experiences at Doris's house spawned the book and the 1982 movie The Entity, starring Barbara Hershey. Both were written by Frank D. Felita, and the movie follows the story of a woman who is tormented by unseen entities. While the movie takes a lot of creative liberties, according to Barry, it is largely based on the events of the Doris Bither case. It should be noted that Barry and Carrie profited from consulting on the movie. Their mentor, however, the woman who ran the parapsychology department at UCLA, uh, Thelma Moss, who visited the site 
the one time, yeah. said the movie was the worst kind of sensationalism. Mm, so yeah. just throwing that out there. I've watched the movie. It's good. It's an early 80s horror movie. Huh. Is it really graphic? No. Oh, good. Not that I remember. It's been a long time. Most of those 80s movies weren't graphic. Like, like they were graphic if you count, like. Suggestive. Yeah. They were, like, graphic if you counted, like, boobies being seen. But they weren't graphic as far as, like, descriptions of what was happening. I don't. So. I don't count that as graphic. So. According to Brian Harris, who is Doris's middle son, the one that was 13 mm-hmm. um, in 1974. The neglected one, yeah. In 1995, Doris passed away at the age of 58 from cardiopulmonary failure. Oh, no. While it is stated that her death was the result of mul- multiple organ failures, the precise cause of it, like what exactly happened was never medically determined. It doesn't sound like they got an autopsy. Well, it also sounds like her heart went through a lot of trauma in her life between any substances she was taking, but also just like the physical and emotional trauma. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. on the body, man. In that 2011 article written by Barry Taff, he stated, Contrary to what many people believe, the case of Doris Bither, that later became a novel and a motion picture, The Entity, was not, in my professional opinion, the result of spectral rape, a.k.a. spectrophilia. Mm Mm-hmm but rather a disturbingly real poltergeist outbreak. Unfortunately, the amassed data on the case does not in any way support ghostly sex, but back in the mid-1970s, while I was in my mid-20s, such a notion was intriguing to say the least. So he's he's admitting, you know, decades later that, oh yeah, I probably like really leaned into that because it was an interesting idea. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you are a parapsychologist and you come across something that you've never actually seen and probably very rarely hear about, you're going to be like, okay, I'm curious now. But especially in your 20s, starting your career, like you're even more gung-ho because you're not going to be looking at it with that super like critical analytical. Yeah. Yep. The passage of almost four decades and the experience of thousands of more cases have provided this author with a rather unique perspective regarding such experiences and claims. Remember, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And while there was plenty of evidence that we were dealing with real paranormal phenomena, it was very likely nothing to do with incorporeal sex, except in the mind of Doris and her children. So... Dr. Taff, as he says in his 2014 book, Aliens Above, Ghosts Below, Explorations of the Unknown, he believes that it is not ghosts or spirits behind the haunting of Doris Bither. The paranormal phenomena that they're experiencing is recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, or RSPK. Her vibes cause random exactly. <laughs> movement so, of objects. So I have the, yep, I have the explanation. So as everybody may know, psychokinesis is the ability to move objects with your mind, whether purposefully or subconsciously. Think Carrie. It can be divided into two types, microscopic and macroscopic. Okay. So microscopic psychokinesis works on a small scale, like really small. Think like subatomic particle small. Could is that how I could light a candle with my breath, like in practical magic? Probably, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's it's 
They describe it as electrostatic base, and it requires a conscious effort, resulting in fatigue of the individual. So a lot of times, this is what's attributed to turning things on and off. And the heavy feeling. And the heavy feeling. Feel. Yep. So this is something that people make a genuine effort to do. Macroscopic psychokinesis, though, is something that people believe is commonly the problem of poltergeist activity. So it involves the ability to move very large objects, sometimes weighing hundreds of pounds, and is believed to be subconscious in nature, usually brought out by times of stress, times of trauma, like when your emotions are at your highest, basically. Okay. So Taff believes that... Unlike microscopic psychokinesis, no fatigue is observed in the person at the center of the phenomenon in macroscopic. So in both cases, it is believed that the ability is put on by like one human. Mm -hmm. But there are multiple factors that contribute to the phenomena with some overlap between them. One of these is the location where the individual is experiencing it, which could be a site of a strong geomagnetic or electromagnetic anomaly affecting them. Okay. And another variable is that the individual is often seizure-prone or epileptic, probably without realizing it. Mm. Mm -hmm. And lastly, they tend to have poor coping mechanisms and struggle to manage stress effectively. When these three factors combine the right way, Taft says it can lead to the occurrence of RSPK. So he's implying that this house was already in a space with this electromagnetic energy. Yep. And then add in the fact that it was worse when she was under the influence of substances and then she was, you know, her inhibitions are lowered. She's under stress. She's got all that going on. She's got four children. Yeah. That's in a house that was condemned. Exactly. And then the fact that she had all this other trauma, they don't know because she wasn't seeking medical attention. Right. They don't know what other problems might have been existing because of previous stuff. Right. So he's basically saying this was the perfect storm for her to generate poltergeist activity that was actually all coming from her, which would explain the some occurrences at the houses before and the continued occurrences at the houses after, though not as strong because it wasn't in that main house. Well, yeah, if if the, her conditions weren't quite as bad before or after, I just... I have said in the past that, like, sometimes my feelings are too big for my body. Mm -hmm. In my brain, that's what she was going through. It's like she had too many emotions. Then you add substances to it so that you don't have your normal, like, keeping it on the inside thing. And she just is like, bah! Exactly. Poltergeist. Javier Ortega has a slightly different viewpoint after spending some time interviewing Doris's sons, especially Brian. He is quoted as saying, Although there is much more to Doris's life and haunting that I can mention in this article, I can tell you that all the evidence leads up to this being a case of extraordinary psychokinetic powers, or at least that's how I see things. Dr. Barry Taff is correct when he stated that Brian Harris seemed to contradict himself when I interviewed him. Although this is evident in the interview, I don't believe this was done with intent. As I recall, when talking to Brian for a few hours over the phone, he seemed extremely agitated and very emotional over the fact that some things were written about his mother that were not true. Okay. He was so emotional that it was apparent how jumbled his thoughts were in that moment. Mr. Harris just wanted to get the facts out there about his mother. 
He is the middle child and remembers a few things quite clearly. She was no drunk. Sure, she liked to drink every now and then, but not the way the investigators painted her. And he then says his voice cracked a little as he went on to say all that stuff about her manifesting these entities because of there being three young males in the house that created all this tension is crap. These things were real. I saw them and they saw us. So Ortega goes on to say, I do believe Mr. Harris experienced things that his brothers did not. There was a time when one of the children was slapped by an unseen hand during the middle of the night. Another story involves one of the boys bumping into an invisible person in the hallway. Ew. The boys all experienced and saw different things throughout the years. The bottom line is that they all experienced something in that house. Something there was paranormal. So he's saying he can believe the psychokinetic energy, but Mm -hmm. it's not just her. It was the house, too. Right. Based on his interviews of the family. Also, also, of course, if... I mean, that would be a contributing factor to why she's so freaking stressed out. Exactly. And then I was just reading some online discussions to try to get some points that I might want to bring up, and it helps me process my thoughts. Uh Uh-huh. And one Redditor brought up a very interesting viewpoint on the controversy. I said, in the end, it seems that they stopped researching because they simply could not find common ground between practical psychiatry and parapsychiatry. The two are so adverse to each other, and it's not a huge surprise that this case was dropped, though it is sad to see that it was. I think that any relevant information, photos, videos, and audio were documented as confidential, and that's why there's so little evidence to be found on the internet. Patient confidentiality can be career-ending if breached, after all. That is a very good point. And that was something I wouldn't have even thought of. Right. Like, so... The, they're they're basically pointing out like you you, you go to the doctor like say Doris did go to the doctor to get some of that well none of that's gonna come out right I'm yeah because it'd be sealed I mean, I, one would think that the parapsychology department would also have connections with an actual psychologist because part of what they would do would be to see what is actually something that's caused by the paranormal versus what is happening with Someone's brain not working the way that we think it should. Right. So ultimately, the story ends very similar to the San Pedro haunting. The investigation gets dropped. Everybody moves on with their lives. Yeah. So there really isn't a neat wrap up. We do know that Doris passed away and that the sons are saying they experienced everything. I saw nothing about interviewing with the daughter. I'm going to guess she probably was like too young and maybe just didn't want to be involved. Yeah. But that is the story of the Doris Bither, a.k.a. the Entity Haunting. That was an upsetting story. Right? Because even if... Even if she was manifesting the sexually sexual assault in her mind, she's experiencing it as real. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That is awful. And if you had a massively traumatic childhood and then a tragic adulthood and then you're experiencing these things, of course, I'm sorry, just, I, of course you're going to turn to drinking. Right. Or something just to help you cope. Right. Because if, if depending, it sounds like to me that depending on how she was raised or not raised in this instance, she's getting Mm -hmm. kicked out as a teenager, no matter what the, you know, wild and wild Wild ways were. Right, is there? 
Uh, she probably was never taught the coping mechanisms or the ways that to like get help for herself. I mean, also this was the seventies. They oh, didn't yeah. really have those. Exactly. Yep. I mean, you're you just right suffered in silence or suffered just by drinking. That's how most people coped. Yep. Yep. All right. So on a skeptic scale, para to normal, para being five, normal being one. How do you rate this? And I don't mean do you believe Doris about all the details, but overall the paranormability of it all. I'm gonna give it a four. I'm I'm gonna go I'm gonna go five. Okay, but I I would love to hear. I mean, is it just because? Uh, well, so the my hesitation is that the human brain can do so much more than what we give it credit for. So I'm trying to decide, do I think that if these things were really happening, but Doris was the one causing it, is that paranormal or is that technically normal? It's just not something that people can usually do. But we're also not usually put in those circumstances. I'm going to say it's paranormal because I kind of rate it on the scale of like aliens. Oh. <laughs> like aliens are paranormal. Uh-huh. Uh, but. But. but- but it could be a, an actual factual thing. Exactly. Like that's a that real exists. live, it could be a real live being that exists. But because we don't understand it or know enough about it, we're going to still call it paranormal. So that's why the telekinetic thing, I'm going to be like, yes. Okay. Then I'm going to give it a five. Okay. Boom. Swing in the vote. All right. <laughs> do you have something to lighten up the mood a little bit here? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. This is what, so we've had this discussion. I can't remember if we talked about it. We did talk about it last week where like it's nice to have something oh, that balances, balances out. Yeah. The, <laughs> like the darker stories. It's nice to have something that's a little bit lighter so that we're not just total fucking bummers for y'all. Yeah. I, you know, I try really hard in general not to be that much of a bummer. Oh, I'm usually pretty much a bummer when I'm a bummer. I have no way around it. <laughs> Look, I did have the song, I'm Just a Kid in Life is a Nightmare. I just kept playing in my head over and over again. <laughs> I was feeling very emo earlier today. I'm just like, I'm just a kid. I know I'm 37, but I'm just a kid. <laughs> Life is a nightmare. <laughs> I'm not dramatic. You're dramatic. <laughs> Don't anyway. shush me. I didn't even say anything. <laughs> anyway, uh, tonight I'm going to tell you about ye old song. Uh, ye old salutation in in Nottingham, England. It's like a Renaissance fair thing. Ye old salute. Head on down to the ye old salutation in. Buy your ale, ale and uh, uh, mead, goose livers. Your father smells of elderberries. Yeah. All right. So, All right. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I have a little. Uh, Little claws at the beginning of mine as well. Okay. So before I even start, I just want to mention that like many of the stories that I've researched from very old buildings in Europe, not all of my sources seem to fully agree on the history. (laughs) Example, one of my sources claims that this building was torn down. No. It was not. Oh. (laughs) But also goes on to then talk about it still being there. Uh, And I could... Maybe see if it had been torn down and rebuilt. However, nothing else said anything about it being torn down at all. So I don't know where they got that. (laughs) Um, So I guess just as a disclaimer, if you've read about or heard anything about the inn that I'm telling differently, 
that is because there are a couple different versions of the inn's history out there. All right. I'm ready. All right. So the Ye Old Salutation Inn, nicknamed The Sal, is one of the oldest pubs in Nottingham with parts of the original building dating back to 1240. Jesus. I know. Like many buildings in Nottingham's historic district, uh, the Sal was built on top of two levels of man-made caves, which were used for food storage prior to domestic refrigeration that were likely part of a Saxon farm, which dates back to the 9th century. Oh, my God. Things in Europe are just so old. So freaking old. All right. So the original 13th century alehouse was originally known as the Ark Angel Gabriel salutes the Virgin Mary. <laughs> Sounds like a intro to a bad porno. I know. It's a weird name, but uh, whatever. According to Wikipedia, this name is said to be a reference to the Hail Mary greeting given by Gabriel to Mary uh, and was one that was commonly given to the guest of houses of religious institutions. Okay. <laughs> Just like... All of these religious institutions or things that are associated with them are called the Archangel Gabriel Salutes the Virgin Mary. There are some weird church names out there. I had to fill out a bunch of envelopes to like send out mailers and I sent a bunch to churches. There's some weird names. Yeah. You're like, how? And And then you hear the history of it and you're like, oh, okay, that tracks. I mean, you know, we could change it though. (laughs) But anyway, so because of the association with like, religious institutions, this has led many to speculate that the inn may have originally been affiliated with either the White Friars uh, Carmelite Monastery or the Grey Friars Franciscan Friary. What? White? Is this like Gandalf the Grey versus like Saruman the White type scenario? It's White Friars versus Grey Friars. One is a Carmelite Monastery and the others is a Franciscan friary. Like caramel light, not full fat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's it's white, because it's light on the caramel. Uh, both of which were near the alehouse. However, after extensive research, there actually seems to be no evidence supporting this. So we don't know why it was called this salutes the Virgin Mary thing. Got it. Throughout the inn's history, it has been an integral part of the area's history. From being a location where crusading knights would have stopped on their way to the Holy Land to where guests of King Edward III would have stayed during his time at the nearby Nottingham Castle. During the 1360s, the core of the current building was a workshop for the city's tanner with an accompanying living space above. And in the early 1400s, the building was used as a hostel for travelers. By the 1440s, Part of it was used as a private dwelling for a man named John Alster. Uh, during this time, the caves underneath the building were used as a hiding place for Jews escaping persecution, as well as, per Wikipedia, a brewing space for the alehouse and a servant accommodations. You got to utilize a cave. Yeah. Uh, Wikipedia also said that during this time it was used as a leper colony. And I was like, I don't think that's true i don't know why but it, i mean in that, addition to being a brewing space and servant accommodations and a, a sanctuary for jewish folks who were like on the move from persecution i was like would you, would you like some like rotted flesh in your beer 
because that's what that sounds like. I'm saying <laughs> that does that is not hygienic. Food safe. It is not food safe. <laughs> Ooh, no. Uh, and then skipping ahead to the mid 1600s, during the English Civil War, it said that both factions had established recruiting rooms in the inn. So the I don't I don't know who the two sides were, but they were both recruiting out of this inn, which probably caused some tension. Okay. Um, and a local legend says that the inn was the location where leading parliamentarians signed the death warrant for King Charles I uh, because they were mad at him for basically starting the English Civil War. So it was King Charles I and the other guys recruiting. And then at the end of it, they're like, let's just kill him. <laughs> After this, civil leaders decided that they did not need the religious implications of the Archangel Gabriel salutes the Virgin Mary. Instead, renaming the inn to the Soldier and Citizen. Okay. Then in 1660, it was renamed once again to its current name. So it has been the ye old salutation inn since 1660. I need to know why they felt the need to put ye old in front of things. Like that's just something we've accepted now. Oh, right. Yeah. When we talk about like when we want to place something in like Robin Hood era England. It's like ye we old throw this. ye old in front of it and we're like, yeah, that counts. Why? You know who might know? Who? Kara. It seems like something she would know. This does seem like something Kara would know. <laughs> Kara, um, help. Help. <laughs> She's on Facebook right now. I was talking to her before we were recording. <laughs> Let's just message her. Like, question. Can you answer this for us before we're done with this episode? <laughs> we're just going to start phoning a friend. It's always Kara. And it's going to always be ridiculous. <laughs> All right. So it was... Uh, Name, it was changed to its current name, Yield Salutation Inn, and essentially rebranded with new signage depicting a pair of hands shaking. Cute. Yep. Friendly. Yeah. During this time, the building was a mixed-use building with a brothel in what is now the dining room and a sweets shop in what is now the Cromwell room, <laughs> which is a really weird combination. <laughs> Sorry, the building was sexy and sweet. <laughs> oh. oh. See, I was thinking, like, the the dads were going to go get their times with the uh, the brothel ladies. And then they're like, okay, kids, you hang out here at the candy section. Come to the Yield Salutation Inn for your sugar, your spice, and everything nice. <laughs> they should have done that as part of the rebrand. There you go. That's what I'm saying. During the late 17th century, the inn gained the reputation of being the hangout for nefarious highwaymen. And then, I guess after that, it's just been an inn and pub. Because pretty <laughs> much all of my sources, <laughs> history, depictions, end around the mid-1800s. They're like, this is the really important stuff. Everything from here on out is boring. It's boring. It's just an inn. Psh. It, we don't even have a brothel anymore. That's not true. I don't know when the brothel went away. <laughs> All right. But now. It's still, some say it still exists to this day. <laughs> Sex work is real work. That's true. I hope their living conditions are better. Yes. If it still does. Actually, now the pub nowadays is known as a classic rock and roll bar. Kind of a biker bar. Apparently, it has great music, great beer, 
and some interesting stories. Okay. Uh, it's not surprising that a pub with such a long history is also known to house a ghost or two. Or, as according to one landlord, maybe as many as 89. Oh my god. You don't get to hear about all 89. Aww. I don't know where they got that number. Uh, one of the most famous of the inn spirits is that of a little girl named Rosie. According to an article in the Nottingham Post from 2019, Rosie was a young flower seller who, according to local legend, was struck by a carriage in the courtyard when she was only four or five. Oh, sad. I know. So she's a ghost now? Yeah. Kids are creepy. I reiterate. Well, so after the incident, it said that she was carried down into the caves in order to keep her cool and comfortable while like waiting for the doctor to arrive. Mm-hmm. Sadly, however, she passed away before he could help her. Not long after, folks in the pub began complaining about being scratched. They all appeared to have four little scratch marks as though they had been scratched by a child. You know what? I can't blame her. She's like, okay, so so, so peep this. I am a child. I'm a literal child, and I am being forced to sell flowers, and then you couldn't even just look for me in the road? You ran me over with a carriage. So now I'm dead, and I'm pissed because I didn't even get to enjoy my childhood. I would be mad too, Rosie. Well, also, they put her in, like, a dank-ass cave basement to wait for the doctor. And thank you. For using the word dank right, because one of my biggest complaints is when people use dank to say something's good, and I freaking hate it. Dank I, is gross. Dank is musty and dark and dirty basement. And bad. It's yeah. bad. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I also have that as a weird thing. I also have this thing about uh, itching and scratching. It itches, you scratch it, you're not itching it. Yep. Steve says it wrong. <laughs> Just to bug me, I swear. He's like, oh, I'll just itch it. I'm like, it itches, and then you scratch it, Steve. All right, so Rosie is out here scratching Scratching, Not itching people, scratching Scratching them. Yep. After about two weeks of this, the pub's landlord realized that he needed to do something about this because his clientele were getting annoyed. Uh, So he placed a doll down in the caves for Rosie to play with. After which, the scratching stopped. Nice. She really was just bored. A staff member by the name of Jason Weston claims to have had a number of paranormal experiences over the years, one of which happened when a former landlord didn't take Rosie seriously. Oh. Quote, one former landlord didn't believe in ghosts and took all of the dolls and teddies out of the cave. Stupid move. All his beer went off overnight. I think that means that all, like, the heads, like, the, it just exploded everywhere. I would take it either that the, like, taps blew yep. or the beer went bad. I assume the taps blew. Okay. Mostly because that's significantly more theatrical. Legit. Legit. Uh, since then, nobody, myself included, has dared to risk it again. Unquote. In addition to Rosie, there are said to be three former landlords who have stuck around in the inn, all of whom are named John. Of course. Popular name. One, a man named John Green, who was the landlord in the early 1800s. So he had his whole family poisoned when they were served oatmeal that was contaminated with arsenic. Oh, my God. So the arsenic was in the inn to exterminate rats. And so I don't know how the contamination happened. His whole family was poisoned, but John was the only one who died. Okay. 
So he hangs around. I can't. How does that even happen? I don't know. Was it Rosie? Rosie. Rosie. I, you know, I assume that it's the same sort of just bad restaurant stuff that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Not food safe. Not food safe. It's not food safe to put arsenic in your oatmeal. No. No, don't do it. That's some flowers in the attic level shit. We're not dealing with it here. <laughs> Another former- Back off, VC Andrews. Sorry. Another former landlord named John uh, fell down the steps to the cave cellar below the inn where he then broke his neck in the fall. Oh. So Jason Weston told the Nottingham Post about his experience with John, this John, <laughs> saying, quote, John stares John, not stares arsenic John, John, not arsenic John, stares John. John is fastidious about the cleanliness of the cellar. Maybe he tripped. And that's why. Tripped over something left out. Yep. So he's he's obsessed with the cleanliness of the cellar. If it's not absolutely spotless, he slams doors and throws things. My first encounter with him was when I first moved to the pub. The cellar needs to be really good clean, so I'd spend about 18 hours down there sorting it out. I popped upstairs briefly, and when I returned, there was a really old half-pint glass of beer in the middle of the floor. I'm absolutely 100% sure that no one had been down there. Uh, so I guess John left beer on the floor. Like maybe he's like, God, I don't even know. I don't even know why there would be an old half pint of beer down there. But anyway. Well, sometimes you're carrying beer around with you as you do stuff. You set it down and you forget about it. Oh, maybe he was, uh, he was, he was being like the boss, the foreman. He's yeah. like, drinking my beer. All right, well, I guess I'll just finish this. And he sets it down in the middle of the floor. Anyway, Jason goes on to say, uh, I get on pretty well with John now. I've even forgotten to close the cellar door on my way back up to the pub before now and jokingly shouted back, close the door for me, John, and it has slammed shut, unquote. That's cool. I like that. I like that, too. I love a, I love a ghost that's going to help a brother out. Uh, and the last of the former landlords named John unalived himself via hanging, allegedly because he was so terrified of the ghostly activity in the inn that he couldn't stand it anymore. Oh, wow. And now Sell the he inn. himself is a ghost. So now he's stuck with the people he was scared of? Terrifying. Hopefully they get along better now. He's like, ah, you guys weren't that bad. You, you just want to have a clean cellar. You he's over like, here, you just need to watch what you eat. <laughs> and Rosie... <laughs> And Rosie, here's a doll. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, another ghostly apparition that you might see in Ye Olden is a pirate who is said to have fallen into the 79-foot well shaft. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, it said that he was hiding in the caves under the inn when he allegedly fell into the well and drowned. So the pirate hangs out in the basement as well, chilling with Rosie. There's also one of the nefarious highwaymen who is said to be hanging out in the ground floor bar. He's just hanging out drinking. Another highwayman is allegedly found in the caves behaving confused and aggressively. One witness reported seeing the phantom highwayman running towards them, but then luckily uh, the figure disappeared before they could make contact. Okay. So... I'm trying to count. How many ghosts was that, Rosie? Rosie. John, John, John. <laughs> Pirate. Pirate. Three highwaymen? 
Two highwaymen. Two highwaymen. So we've got, I mean, hey, we got seven out of the apparently 89. Is that the random number that one person threw out there? Well, so, and then there are even stories of a group of Roman soldiers who have been seen emerging from one wall, marching through the cellar, and then disappearing into the opposite wall. I think I like that haunting the least. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine just like a flood of soldiers just coming through the one room. Right. <laughs> and like how how many in the sources a lot of people refer to it as a legion. And I'm like, oh. is that the rest of the 82? <laughs> <laughs> it's just 82 Roman soldiers walking through the cellar. <laughs> um, I will say though, because I was like, okay, that seems weird. Uh, there is little proof that Roman soldiers occupied Nottingham and during this time, during any time, actually, yeah. Nottingham just wasn't where they were hanging out when they were over in Europe. Uh, but if they did, it would have been before the ninth century, which is when the man-made cave was made. made. Yep. So I don't know about the Roman soldier thing. I, I don't, I don't even know. I don't, and especially, I don't know why there'd be a whole legion of them, and I don't know why they'd be so like deep down into the ground if that that yeah, didn't exist at the time. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, but that is ye old salutation in in Nottingham, England. All right, I'm going to give you two things after this. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to give you my rating on the skeptic scale. Uh huh. And then I'm going to tell you what I think my favorite pairing of the ghosts is. So. On a skeptic scale, I'm going to give it a four. Awesome. Awesome. Because it is very old. I love the uh, story from the bartender who says the one ghost helps him out and actually closes it. I know. I think there's enough to go here where I'm comfortable with a four. I'm also comfortable with a four. Okay. Tell me your favorite ghost pairings. I'd like to think that in that basement, Rosie Uh and the pirate are chilling. Yep. Like yep. being besties. I knew that. I knew that's what you're going to pick because that's exactly what I was going to pick, Kayla. I love a gruff but nice older guy hanging out with a kid. Yep. That's why I like the Mandalorian and Grogu. Right. That's why I like Wolverine and Rogue. Yeah. Like basically, oh, that's why I like Joel and Ellie from uh, The Last of Us. Like basically you take like a gruff, hard like older person and then a like more fun loving and innocent younger person and they're like best friends I'm here for it so I like to think that Rosie is teaching the pirate how to play I love that and they're like sitting on the floor cross-legged and she's like like this and he goes I I just think this is stupid and she's like what and he's like it's not stupid hi I'm Mr. Bear So, yes, there's nothing to back up this claim that we are making, but in our head canon, this it's is there. the way the haunting. It's there. In our head canon, this is the key haunting at the ye old salutation inn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope this becomes part of the legend. Me too. They're like, so I was listening to this podcast, and apparently, they're besties. The, the pirate and the little girl Rosie are like really good friends. <laughs> I couldn't find it in any other sources, but you know, there are a lot of sources that say a lot of different things about this place. (laughs) We're just one more unreliable source, baby. Uh, No listener stories for you this week. If you have a listener story you would like to share, we would love to hear it. You can do so by emailing us directly, leftofskeptic at gmail.com. 
You can also visit our website, www.leftoskeptic.com, and click the Listener Stories tab at the top of the page. Uh, the website is officially all up to date now because I stopped slacking. You can also click the link tree in our bio. You My can stuff choose- is not up to date. Well, everything but your like last couple of episodes. Oh, okay. I was like, don't lie to the listeners, Kayla. I was like a few weeks behind on putting the descriptions and stuff in because yeah. I got overwhelmed. Uh, but you can choose to remain anonymous or include your name, whatever you prefer. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Left of Skeptic and Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast. We want to thank you all for joining us again this week. We are a short ways away from Urban Legends October, and we can't wait. And by a short way, one more week after this. After this. So, uh, happy Spooky Wednesday. Happy Spooky Wednesday. We love you and appreciate you. It's true, we do. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me, Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc, and our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye! So dramatic. <laughs> I'm not dramatic, you're dramatic. <laughs> <laughs>